Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1400. <laughs> I was doing a check on the number 1400 and we'll get to that in a second but our title today is Dustin Time. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> our podcast title is The Up Pod Down Side. <laughs> <laughs> I am Rob Chen. And Megan McHugh. And 1400. Well of course when I get into numbers like that I start thinking of Starship Registry numbers as you do from Star Trek and the NCC 1400 Naval Construction Contract, as they have in their registry. The SS Conestoga, named after those famous wagons that they used in the United States mm-hmm. back in the day. Conestoga was an Earth colony ship that was launched in 2069. Mm-hmm. It was commanded by Captain Mitchell, and it carried 200 colonists from Earth to colonize the planet of Terra Nova. Information which we gleaned from the sixth episode of Season 1 of Star Trek Enterprise, which was first broadcast in 2001. Now, in the far less utopian world of the past, in the year 1400, in the Julian calendar, which started on a Thursday, it was a leap year. And now, in the year 2022, in the current Gregorian calendar used in, for example, the United States of America, it might as well be the year 1400, Mm -hmm. given the US Supreme Court very far from supreme, I would say, deciding to take a terrifying leap backwards in women's rights by overturning Roe versus Wade. Although, to be fair to the year 1400, some reading I've done suggests that there might not have been as many women in medieval Europe actually prosecuted for abortions as you might think. Hmm. Though a caveat to that might be that it was harder to gather evidence than it is now, now that they can mine your app that keeps track of menstruation. Devastated Mm. and outraged and all of those things and urge all countries that are more civilised to look to their own defences of women's rights because these things can be taken away. Roe versus Wade has been active for, what, 50 years? Yep. So it now means that American women in certain states now have fewer rights than their mothers did or their grandmothers in some cases. Shocking. We know in science fiction they're flying the handmaid's tale because here it is echoing the fictional future that Margaret Atwood so vividly and horrifically portrayed, here it is in part now. Yeah. And it's like, how are we in the 21st century? It's a lot of the stuff we cover on Zero G. It's, you know, science fiction, it's speculative. And then when you start to see some of those things or movements towards those things in the headlines, it's scary, scary stuff. And, yeah, I just urge everyone to be engaged with these issues and keep trying to educate Mm. and keep trying to push and protect women's rights. And And fight for a better future because – That's the way we get to Star Trek Utopia. 
with its space battles. And That's all we want, <laughs> all equal space battles. No, it's just I'm terribly annoyed by this and frustrated and angry and just thinking, why does this have to be fought all over again? And I'm wondering, you know, from a, a tactical point of view, is it going to now be state by state? Mm. Because if you don't have federal umbrella protection, then you're going to have to go and basically bury the Republican Party in each state. Well, basically now a compliant yeah. state. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of them and that's a lot of people that are going to be affected. And mm. Well, I think that we should move on to some stranger things, as it were. I would almost say this is where science fiction comes into it, own to be a bit of an uplifting journey, but it's stranger things. <laughs> you know, it's I grim mean, when we're looking towards the upside down, but you're right, Rob, I think let's turn our attention to, yeah, yes. to what's going on in Hawkins. Mm. Well, I thought that we might have a bit of an uplifting moment from season three mm-hmm. of The Stranger Things, and we're going to go with the full Dustin and Susie never-ending story. We are amazing. <laughs> now, to set this up, you know, it's looking pretty dire in Hawkins. The Russians, they've set up a base of their own and they're using a portal to access the Upside Down. Mm-hmm. Joyce and Hopper are in trouble. Yep. Yeah, uh, they're wearing Soviet uniforms and infiltrating the base. Less convincingly, in the case of Joyce, I think. <laughs> you know what? I want to see Winona Ryder mm-hmm. playing her Joyce character somehow edited into the character of Mina Harker that she played in Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of Mina Joyce, I think that would be terrific. <laughs> I think Dracula would be sorted out in short order, actually. <laughs> Because Joyce is great. She is you know? great. And Winona's writing through all of her repertoire of puzzled and baffled and annoyed and angry expressions in that. She's amazing. <laughs> so to set this up, mm. that's all happening. Yep. Some of the Scoobies are in a car being chased down the road mm-hmm. by one of the monsters. Yep, Steve, Robin. And, and here we have Dustin and his shortwave radio girlfriend, Susie. Yep trying to pass a message about Planck's constant. Yes, which is crucial in this scenario, helping us get to mm. some very important information. But we, we don't yeah. want to clue Susie into what's going on, of course. So Dustin's got to use his powers of persuasion to get the info out of her. I guess the song that both Susie and Dustin swear by and obviously have been have been karaoke duoing together over the shortwave radio. That's way too long an explanation. No, but it's such a great moment in season three. I really enjoyed season three, and I think a lot of people give it a bit of flack, but this was definitely a fun moment in the in the big finale climax of, of the end of that season. And, of course, it's the 80s, so mm. they would, being first-class nerds and geeks, they'd use an 80s song. Yeah, and Gaten Matarazzo, he's got, like, singing chops. Like, he's got done a lot of musical theatre, loves to sing. So, obviously, yeah. they were like, let's include a little something. And I'm glad they did. Hi, my name is Greg McLean, director of Wolf Creek and Rogue. You are listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. We just went the full Dusty Bun and Susie Poo. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we needed. A salve for the soul, I think that was. From 
The Stranger Things season three, mm. that moment when Dustin and Susie karaoke together across the swamp. <laughs> now I'm sad because the horse got killed in the uh, never-ending story. <laughs> 80s movies were grim and they pulled no punches. Oh, yeah, the, the original song, of course, from the never-ending story, corker of a book adaptation. They did some great fantasy ones. We talk about Princess Bride in the um, 80s as well, of course. Uh, Princess Buttercup uh, later went on to play one of the Amazons in the Wonder Woman movie. Oh, Yes. 1987 was the Princess Bride. There we, yeah, I mean, it was like 80, 82 and stuff like that. We've got Blade Runner and John Carpenter's The Thing. Oh, yeah. Neither of which did particularly well at the box office, but later on, of course, it became massive. Cold favourite. Yeah, and I had my copy of The Thing on video. Still have that. Iconic cover too, that one. That one springs to mind. I think I've got the necessary equipment to play it. (laughs) Anywho, we are lost in 80s nostalgia here because we are talking about The Stranger Things. Now in its fourth season, dropped on Netflix, four seasons. Yeah. It's a split season too, isn't it? It is. So we've got nine episodes all up and seven episodes dropped in the first iteration, volume one, and they've just dropped the second volume, which is another two episodes. Uh, and those are quite a doozy because the first episode in volume two, episode eight, is an hour and a half or so, and the finale is a whopping two and a half hours. So that's like feature film length and long feature film length episodes in volume two. Um, but we thought we'd stick to discussing a bit of volume one, the first seven eps, which is still many, many hours of content in season four. And, yes, they they have already been contracted for one more season, season five, and I believe that will be the final of the Stranger Things uh, universe, or at least that's as it stands now. By God, they'll be completely grown up. They will be. I wouldn't mind a time jump, like if we could do some kind of college years or or something. But, um, yeah, so leave that up to the Duffer Brothers. Wouldn't it make sense, like, because, you know, 80s and Stephen King and all that, wouldn't it make sense if they did it like It and jumped them forwards? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would watch that. I mean, I suppose, though, some of the appeal is they've already got three different age groups. They've got the parents, the teens, and the kids. So I don't know. Mm. I mean, I have faith. The Duffer Brothers, they're strong on the nostalgia and they know how to pull things together. So I'll be interested to see what they do with that. And, yeah, so season four, produced by the Duffer Brothers as usual. Also we've got Sean Levy who's been producing this whole time, Dan Cohen and Ian Patterson on Netflix. And the length of the season is quite a long one, but we how we whip through a bit decent amount of plot, different locations, different character arcs. We introduce some new folks. A lot is happening. I found that well this half of the season was very bingeable. Yes. As in just watch big slabs of mm-hmm, it because mm-hmm. it made sense. It was like watching the greatest 80s movie that never was. Yes. It just you know? it keeps going. It does. And it picks up pace, I would argue. And it does also, I think, because the fact it takes place in multiple different places, it's also multiple different movies. So I think if we're doing mm-hmm. all in spoilers, we're getting like a weird experimental medical movie. We're getting Russian prison movie. We're getting, you know, rock and roll devil teenager 
<laughs> Supernatural uh, movie. Attempted escape from Russian prison movie. Exactly. Like we've got all these different tropes, all these different things to follow, and there's coming-of-age story there. There's like a grief piece around, you know, how to deal with trauma and all these different tones and all these different people we're following. It's pretty jam-packed. That might sit differently with different viewers, I would think. Let's see, just to give you some updates on the whole thing, uh, Joyce and Sheriff Hopper and Murray, the unexpectedly dangerous conspiracy theory sort of fella who's in it all, they're all kind of heading or in the Soviet Union. In Hopper's case, we know this is no spoiler now if you're this far into the season that he survived being killed in the base Mm -hmm. and is now imprisoned in a dreadful gulag in mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Kampcha Peninsula. Anyway, yeah, just Kamp- across from Alaska. Not a very nice place and carefully curated so it doesn't look too much like the prison that David Harper was in when he was playing Red Guardian in Black Widow. Oh, <laughs> There's a bit of a theme and it's been called out in some interviews and he's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I get it. Father figure in Russian prison. I know I've done it before. Apparently he was taking photos of the sets in Black Widow uh, to make sure that he could show them to the Duffer brothers and and they wouldn't have too many echoes. (laughs) And there isn't really. It's far more brutal in the one in The Stranger Things. And, you know, so he's trying to get out of there. He's got some internal help. Uh, Joyce and Murray are on their way. They've got some external help, a guy called Yuri, who's got more than one Siberian snow tiger loose in his top tundra. <laughs> he's, a, he's a pilot. I wouldn't trust him <laughs> to go up in a plane. <laughs> oh, God, no. But they're right. on a rescue mission and Joyce and Murray are determined to find Hopper and save him. And they tie that very nicely into the ongoing Upside Down story. I thought it was a, a good idea what they do. I'll save that for you so you don't have to know about that just yet if you haven't got that far let's spin up some atmospherics with walking through the upside down from kyle dixon and michael stein's season one soundtrack of the stranger things this is cory doctorow author of little brother information doesn't want to be free and the forthcoming novel walk away and you are listening to zero g on three triple r walking through the upside down from the stranger things season one soundtrack by kyle dixon and michael stein Back with Rob and Megan rappelling through the gate into Season 4, Volume 1 of The Stranger Things. Hello, this is Bobcat Goldthwait, and you're listening to 3RRFM Melbourne. Of course, then we've got things that are going on in Hawkins, Mm -hmm. in and under Hawkins. There is a serial killer at work there. At least that's what the police and the people in the town believe. And I suppose in a way they're right. Mm. Mm. And they're trying to think of that as a blowback to a... Serial killer from the 50s, I think? Yes, they're linking it back to some past crimes and that's where Mm -hmm. we can start to unpick a bit of the the relevant historical backstory that we might get explaining maybe some of these events and the deeper roots of the Stranger Things universe. Obviously a callback to many 80s movies where the serial killer was supposed to have been in an institution somewhere and people were worried if they'd escaped. Yes, the old Michael Myers trick. Yeah, yeah. Victor is the serial killer's name. And we also get in a flashback an old, like, haunted house, Amityville horror kind of retro little mini story as well, which I was like, okay, this is sort of interesting. Don't linger here too long. And they didn't. I thought they incorporated that as much as they needed to get that haunted house storyline set up. 
So the Victor Creel story mm. is a sidebar, but really important. So don't skip over it and fast forward or no. anything like that. Plus, it gives us some nice moments where Nancy and Robin, the two older teens there you go. in that group, it gives them the chance to have some real agency in the story as they go off to interview Victor in the institution. Yeah. Like you would be able to do that. And but, I know, but we're getting, you know, we've got some soft lines of reason here because we get some great scenes. They're a very unlikely pairing, and I think it was a good idea to get them in some scenes together and get them into some hijinks too. Yeah. I tell you what, Nancy, she gets my vote as the person who most looks like they stepped out of an 80s movie. She does have the look, doesn't she? There's some story threads I'm not sure why they're revisiting that old ground personally, but I get they want to stir a little bit of interesting drama between the teenage characters. So I'll give them that, but I'll be interested to see what they do with it in volume two. Let's just say that. The remaining scoobs in Hawkins have to deal with new killings. Yes, in graphic the, ones. In the neighborhood. And we know that that's really to do with the upside down and the mind flayer and all of that sort of stuff. While they're dealing with that, half of the scoobies are away in California. Indeed. So not only is Joyce away somewhere, mm-hmm. But the other scoops are over in California trying to fit into a school and not doing it very well. No. Eleven is in particularly bad strife. She's lost her powers now mm-hmm. and she's trying to deal with teenage bullying. Yeah. She's actually quite effective with that. Let's just say she takes direct action <laughs> when bullied. But the bullying, I think, sets a nice scene for where Eleven's at in the story as we start, but then does create a nice opening for where her storyline's going to go, which is where we start to veer into some real flashback territory. But it's not a flashback, but it is a flashback kind of vibes. Yeah, she's skating on very thin ice there. (laughs) The roller skates do prove it, and it's a good thing they're not ice skates and they're actually in a roller rink. Oh, gosh, still (laughs) pretty bad. But, yeah, she takes matters in her own hands, so to speak. Then, of course, we can't have the rest of the season her sitting in trouble, unable to do anything. So, of course, we get the re-entry of some of our characters from earlier in the series. Well, you know, we've been worried about this for a while in The Stranger Things since season one, really, because we know that Eleven escaped from a facility nearby Hawkins and under the ground, mm-hmm. which is connected to the upside down other dimension via portals mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or gates, as they call them in this, or water gates if they happen to be in the water. Because, <laughs> 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 you know. <laughs> and. This is an interesting development. We've always been a bit worried about Mm. things that happened in that underground lab Mm. and how much of an agency did Eleven have there and did she do some really awful things down there as well, of course, being brutalised by the scientists who are experimenting. Yeah. And I was thinking about that and thinking about a show called Dark Angel. Yes, yes, Jessica Alba. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the same kind of thing, really. The young people were being experimented upon by the authorities. In their case, they were using um, transgenics, which is to say the experimenting upon human beings by inserting animal DNA. Yeah, I remember it being some kind of messing with genetic DNA vague reasoning. Yeah. It was called the Manticore Project. So, you know, there's a mythical connection oh, yes. there, blending sort of Two different things. creatures and so on. Yeah, and she had a bad time there. Well, and this is the thing with... 11 is, and this is was interesting, you know, she's 11, right? Like, what up with 10, 9, 8, 7, you know, and so we get that, right? We get a bit of the insight in that. 
we see the magic CGI trickery to get a look at Eleven during her time there Mm. as she goes through some very fringe-like experiments, chambers to revive her her thoughts. Yes, I'd forgotten about fringe. That's a good Mm, point mm, too. mm, mm, mm. Yeah. So, you know, we're wondering what Eleven has to do with that. We do find that out in in Season 4, Volume 1. Yes. You know, the big bad in this one is a a creature called Vecna. Mm -hmm. They're doing the Dungeons and Dragons thing here, which is spiralled off into a bit of a satanic panic in the town of Hawkins. A real thing that happened. Not so much in Australia, I'm told, by people who are into D&D here. No, because I think the origin of the panic, the original events happened in America and so it spread. There was already satanic panic going on, so it all just fed into one big thing. But it's quite an interesting, Mm. if you look back, Dungeons and Dragons got a really bad rap, unfairly. Yeah. Mm. Probably doesn't help that the Hawkins D&D Club calls itself the Hellfire Club. I know, but it's just it's hilarious. Like they're just a bunch of lovely nerds just enjoying some role-playing tabletop. There's a moment when the good townsfolk of Hawkins mm-hmm. turn against the Hellfire Club, and that's straight out of any Stephen King novel. They're, yes, I'm loving those descent in the small town vibes, and then the poor parents all looking at each other, and and there's definitely the element of do you know where your kids are because most of them don't. <laughs> so, Yeah, they have no idea. At one stage, one of the police officers goes to check on the kids. They're supposed to be in their room all sort of, yeah. you know contemplating what they've the done with their- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and he walks up the stairs and he says little pigs little pigs and it's like you know the shining sort of thing and yeah it's all there <laughs> zero g is fun as you were Alrighty, huffing and puffing and big bad wolves blowing the house down well one of the many carefully curated contemporary tracks in the stranger things season four is i was a teenage werewolf from the cramps itself riffing off a 1957 horror movie of that name. Hello, this is Paul McGann. I play the eighth incarnation of The Doctor, and you are listening to 3 FM. I was a teenage werewolf by the Cramps from their 1980 album Songs the Lord Taught Us, and also included in The Stranger Things Season 4, Volume 1, which we are diving into here on Zero G today, as it's streaming on Netflix with Season 4, Volume 2, which has just dropped. Liking the tropes there. So many tropes in Stranger Things, a kaleidoscope of constantly switching channels. Radios switching stations by themselves features in this, and so too do the movie tropes. Mm, Like you're in one horror movie, and it's a lot of horror movie tropes in this season, and then suddenly you're in a science fiction dystopic movie, and then that Russian prison. And I think that's also very well done. And just things, little things like the snow in Russia mm-hmm. drifting down mirrors the drifting moats in the upside down. Yeah, yeah. Some good yeah, visual so parallels. I mean, personally, the Russian prison movie element interested me the least. I love David Harbour and, I mean, thank goodness for en- the character of Enzo <laughs> because yeah. he also engaged me and I think that was a really great choice to introduce that character. It's a real risk when you introduce these different kinds of trope genres and, you know, the whole medical fringe facility thing borderline for me because I'm most interested in the teens in the supernatural horror movie and that's only part of what this show is now. That's definitely my favorite. You know, Steve shirtless, that's what I'm more of this, please. (laughs) That storyline, that was my most interesting part of this volume one 
following that whole Victor Creel investigating the murders in Hawkins, running around trying to figure out what's going on, getting into trouble, that was, for me, the top tier part. But you're right, it's so much more horror. Like we talked about this when we first did a little dip a toe into the season that it's very much leaning into the horror now more than that nostalgic Spielberg-y sci-fi. So yeah. I like that it's matured into this more really graphic, <laughs> tense, scary energy. I thought it was great that they were really leaning into their own legend now, their own mythos, their own backstory. Mm. Because now they're in season four, you know, yes. so they've got a bit of mileage under the old bicycle wheels. And did you love the moment when bicycles once again became the thing? I really did. I did. <laughs> 80s, bicycles, you know, you can't not do that. <laughs> I'm curious about two things. One, your thoughts overall on volume one at the break. And we both have spoken and we've not yet watched volume two. So Totally fresh if you have any predictions for what might happen in the conclusion in the volume two. Well, it seems like we've set it all up, haven't mm. we? We've explored the backstory of Vecna, mm-hmm. the big bad, mm-hmm. and I thought that was really creepily and well done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It made total sense, and this is one of those moments after four seasons where you go, ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think any of that really came out of left field mm. because they did take the trouble to encode it and set it up. Yeah, yeah, sure. Whether or not they knew that's where they were going in season one, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but. But they did make some callbacks to season they one. Did. That I thought were excellent. Yep. You know, exactly the right time to do mm-hmm. it. I thought the the focus upon Eleven's time in the facility at Hawkins. Yeah. I think that was probably a little bit too prolonged. Yes, 100% agree. Mm. Nevertheless, we'd had that wave status in flashbacks for a lot of the series, and I think it was about time we did double down on it and find out what was going on. Just Maybe we could have had a little bit less of that because some of it is a bit repetitive. I totally agree. They did fast track it towards the end, but I wouldn't have minded if we'd had 20 minutes less of that or a couple of scenes less of that because I think we did spend too much time in the facility because that's a midway point on the journey to where we want to go, which is Eleven getting her powers back, having a revelation, us finding out information. Would have liked that to happen a little sooner. On the other hand, repetitive for us, imagine what it was like for Eleven to go through these drug-induced, sensory-deprived mind loops. I would not have said yes to that. That looked like, ugh. No, thank you. And half the time the poor thing, like, has to be resuscitated. They never even asked her if she acknowledged. (laughs) (laughs) Not there to spite her head. (laughs) We're all in that zone at the moment, aren't we? Yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah. The two characters that they introduced, Eddie, Mm -hmm. loved Eddie. Eddie is just fine. The, The dungeon master of the Hellfire Club and also the local drug dealer. Way to go to... Darken the reputation of geeks everywhere. (laughs) At first, I didn't care for him, and then he grew on me quite quickly, and I really liked the energy and the, like, kind of vibe he had with the other characters. I think by the end of the volume one, I was really happy that he was in the mix. I can't understand why all these D&D players don't have more of a, let's bring these items of power along with us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, yeah, okay, 
Dustin's good at that. He's got a backpack. I was going to say, pulling stuff out of Dustin's that. got it figured out. And we get some great dusty moments in this too. Like he really gets mm. a chance to shine, which is awesome. Everyone else seems like a bit second rate next to Dustin. I know. <laughs> Lucas does get a good moment. I remember when we were talking, I was a bit dubious about his arc and I'm happy with where that went. Eleven, obviously, she gets a lot of screen time in this, and and justly so. Once again, she just does such a great job. You know, there is this show would not be what it is without that character, yeah. obviously, and the actress playing it as well. I I do agree. I think she she is the central character. Like this is the thing; it's an ensemble, but there are some clear people that get a bit more time and who are more central to the story. I want to see more Will. I want to learn more about what's going on with him. I could have done without our little side trip to Utah to catch up with Susie. I don't really know if that was entirely necessary yeah. as a character who we could have talked to over the shortwave radio anyway. Yeah, I agree with that. I'd say, in fact, that they were stretched for content for that little contingent in general, and that's your Will, Mike, Jonathan, and Jonathan's mate. So I think that was probably the least interesting group, but... Maybe they'll surprise us. Some of the walkie-talkies that they're carrying around, you know, to facilitate the ease of communication that you have with cell phones, they've got to lug these bricks of walkie-talkies around all the time, which is great. It's They've really leaned into the procedural there. Yeah. So where's it going? That's such a hard thing to say. Yeah, volume obviously two. We're going to, well, obviously we've got to have the showdown with Vecna. Mm-hmm. Given what we know about Vecna now, and we know a lot mm-hmm. to the end of volume one, it may not work out the way that you would naturally think it would tend to go. Mm-hmm. You know, you're obviously thinking about this is the moment where they arrive in and do a Stephen King and find a way to beat the creature and stake it through the heart or chop its head off or any of the other wonderful things I'm sure they've got planned for it. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work out quite that way. Interesting. Mm. Well, yeah, they've got a whole other season. So, I mean, here's what I want to see. I want to see our characters come together and I want to see paths cross, which seems pretty Mm -hmm. far-fetched right now because everybody's very distant and it's back in the day. It's going to be quite hard for them all to converge, but I want to see rejoining. I want to see more of the teenagers talking through a little bit more of like I want to hear a bit of Will. I want them to resolve some of his stuff that they've set up. I want Mike and Eleven to resolve some of their, like, friction that they've set up. I... Mostly want to see a nice resolution for Max as well, who's been through a lot. <laughs> and mm, mm. But what I fear is, my prediction is, I think we're going to get at least one major character death because we have too many characters. And looking at the cliffhanger from Volume 1, and they did a bit of a cliffhanger in Volume 3, I reckon we're going to have some kind of big thing that's going to leave us really hanging at the very, very end of the season too. And if that's not the death, it's maybe something else. I was wondering if someone's going to have to be trapped in the upside down. Like, yeah. I mean, my only thing with that is they seem to know so much of it about it now, but yeah. you're right. That's another possibility. Taking us way back to where we started with poor Will stuck there. Yeah. So, you know, they, they are very much into doing cyclic plots, mm. bringing us back to that. It will be interesting to see where they go, which, of course, is how they get us hooked. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> maybe, maybe Paul Will, like, won't, he'll, they'll kill him off, and that will be <laughs> the thing that's, like, come back around to the middle. I hope that doesn't happen. 
Obviously, Eleven is going to get her full powers back, or perhaps even more. That's, you know, part of the big quest of season four. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm hoping that some of those evil people from the Hawkins Project get their comeuppance. Yeah. You know, the number of times that they could easily have been squashed by these psychic, telekinetic people that they're unjustly experimenting upon. Yeah, but. They seem to dodge the mental bullet all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Not that that'll bring anybody back or help anybody, really. No, I think there's other comeuppances that I'd rather see. And I'm a bit confused by the various governmental and corporate factions that are circulating out there. Everybody seems to want an oar in this one. Yeah, I'm not sure. There's there's definitely a side plot with the whole, like, like some other government thing that's going on. There's a lot more torture in this season than what I would have liked to see. I'm hoping that all comes together and, and has a point because otherwise mm. you've muddied up a season with extraneous plot lines that I don't care about. So we'll we'll hopefully they'll pull it together. Still, this is season four of a a show that's been very popular and a lot of people around the world have watched it, Mm. enough to make the Kate Bush track that they play in it chart all over again. I, You know what, Rob? I love that song and I always have and I feel a little resentful now that it's so popular and so associated in this – like I just feel like, I don't know, it makes me feel weird. What, you thought it was like your special? Like she was singing to me. No, like I just, it's just (laughs) funny to me because it's it's such a classic song and just to have people discovering it or discovering Kate Bush. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. She's a queen. I love Kate Bush, obviously, but I don't know. I think the the song's now become a bit oversaturated. I'm hearing it all the time and I I don't want to feel oversaturated because it's a great track. You realise me being me. I know. Never heard of it. Really? I, yeah, of course. And I do know Kate Bush because I do have one album sitting on my shelf, but I've never heard of this song before. Really, no. Rob? Wow. I mean, I no, just I this... just say that as I thought it was would have charted and been pretty popular at the time that you would have heard. No. <laughs> you know, if it had been on a movie soundtrack, maybe. I think it really has been. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I'm glad then. That, yeah. Well, then I'm pleased that you've – do you like the song outside of the context of Stranger Things? Well, it's hard to say. I've only heard it yeah, it's in hard context to say. of Stranger Things. Yeah. And when I watched the music video of it from back in the day, mm. I realised that they'd taken very much of the style of that video mm. and incorporated it into the actual sequence yeah, in the Stranger yeah, Things. Yeah. And I thought, ooh, that's retro. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, how can we not play that it is a It is a brilliant track. I shouldn't complain. More people knowing and liking it is a good thing. Yeah. So it is called Running Up That Hill slash A Deal With God was the original title, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's from Kate Bush's album, The Whole Story. And so we will play that right now. Now I feel like I shouldn't be running up that hill. I should be using my bicycle, my BMX. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on Zero G. I'm feeling a bit bushed after that. (laughs) Running up that hill, well, that hell in the case of The Stranger Things, mm. Kate Bush there. Epic track. They do a very nice instrumental mm. of that in the show too. Mm. Mm. That was a good, that Nothing. was a great scene. I felt, I felt very, it, you know, all the feels it wanted you to have, I felt them. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, so we've discussed the Stranger Things season four dropped on Netflix now. That's volume one, which is to say they've split the season into two parts. The second volume is It's out now. So everything there is available. We've only covered the volume one because we want to give you a bit more time to catch up with volume Mm. two. So as we will be doing. Mm. All right. Well, since it's the 4th of July, Mm -hmm. I thought I would, in spite of the dreadful attack upon women's rights in the United States, that's just occurred really the, well, it's been brewing for a long time with the Republican nonsense that they've been purveying. And I thought I'd have a look at a Captain America comic. Is it still relevant Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty. There have been times when, of course, Steve Rogers has turned his face away from the United States in disgust mm. when he became nomad at a certain time and put down the shield. Mm. You know, And even in the movies he's done that too, mm. rather like Doctor Who. There are times when the Doctor must turn his face away from Earth in despair. It's a Marvel comic, of course, and it is... Issue one, because they're kind of renumerating it as they often yes, do. Yes, yes. Written by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. The artist is Carmen Carnero and the letterer is VCs Joe Catamanga, colour artist Nolan Woodard. And, of course, there's lots of different variant covers for this. You know how they do it. They give you the one basic cover and then there's lots of other ones that you can buy for varying prices. Of course, so you- get the whole set, give us more money. Got to respect it. Oh. Oh, I don't know. I just look at them online, basically, and say, I like that cover. All right, so this comic basically has uh, rebooted the whole idea of Captain America. We actually have Sam Wilson playing Captain America as well. Yep. It's a franchise now at the same time, kind of. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, so it's all ongoing. And Falcon Captain America is a thing in the MCU now. Yep, yep. And deservedly so. Yep, agree. Nothing you can't achieve with a quick montage in a series to train with that shield. Yeah. So actually, this speaking of the shield, this comic book is all about the shield in, in lots of ways, the symbolism of it and the utility of mm-hmm. it and also some dark secrets that it seems to have had incorporated in it in 1941. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm not really sure where they're going with that because, of course, this is the first of a of an arc. But one of the things that Cap says in this, because they're, they're kind of rebooting the concept of Captain America as well, but also for Steve Rogers, he says, I know the mission, the one that never ends, stand for those who can't. Okay. You know, and that's very strong. And I do wonder how Cap would be reacting right now if he was around. Um, I guess we may find that out at some stage in the comic book because Marvel is very strong in uh, doing issues of the moment in stories. And in this one, he Steve Rogers goes back to, uh, in this case, Lower East Side Manhattan, mm-hmm. gets back into his old apartment <laughs> in a tenement. And, and so the artwork is, is split between Rogers' real world situation now and his memories of the past. Wow, okay, cool. And so they actually fade this right from colour into- to... Sepia I was going to say, yeah, okay, that's pretty it's, classic. It's really lovely artwork. And he basically just hangs around, goes for uh, a training run every morning, mm-hmm. a jog around the island. Of course. <laughs> so, 
and he carries a shield with him so everybody's looking at him and watching him. And he, he dispenses knowledge and advice and wisdom as he runs, as he would do. Like, you know, a little boy in an alley is being bullied. It's the same alley that Rogers was bullied in when he was of course young it is. <laughs> and weedy himself. And so he does a bit of training for the kid mm-hmm. and tells him how to do things. At the same time, they also lean into the idea that Steve Rogers was a bit of an artist. Oh, that's cool. And there's a whole history of that. In the MCU, it's kind of barely alluded to. He's the one who draws the maps of the Hydra mm-hmm. bases mm-hmm. and stuff. And also a cartoon where he shows himself as a, a dancing monkey when he's being used in the USO shows, that sort of mm. thing. They've actually touched upon that in 1970s movies and also in the comic books. Back in the 70s, I think, if I remember correctly, he actually worked as an artist for Marvel drawing Captain America. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) It was very meta, although we didn't call it that in the day. And, you know, so there's this whole story there, but he also hooks up in terms of battling once again with the Winter Soldier, Bucky Barnes, his his good friend. And now they are good friends again. Good. I like that. Brainwashing thing out of the way. Prefer when they're friends. So they have to fight this new villain, and, and we won't go there because it's just, you know, there's another battle and a stoush and, and lots of punching, which, of course, leads to philosophy from Captain America about what the shield means, what he means, uh, that kind of very, thing. It's a good story. It's Captain America Sentinel Liberty reboot number one, really, <laughs> from Marvel Comics. I quite enjoyed it. Well, that's about it for Zero G for today. I would pass to pay tribute to our podcaster, Kayla Larson. Yes. Who is moving on to bigger, better, and most likely saner things after <laughs> her, her time, her, doing her time with us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> her sentence has passed. I still remember when she volunteered as tribute. <laughs> Sole survivor of the Squid Game that is Zero G podcasting selection. And you know what? She did the hard yards during the pandemic podcasting. And Kayla actually said in a communication to me that it was sort of giving her a bit of an anchor, Mm. probably not to reality, but, you know, a connection. And that's, we've said the same thing ourselves about doing Zero G in the challenging times we've lived through and are still going through. The idea of the community of Triple R being plugged into that. It's been a rock, yeah, really. Yeah, agree. A rock and roll, actually. Perhaps not so much on Zero G, but you know what I mean. So thank you, Kayla. Yeah, really. Thank you, Kayla, for, you know, volunteer. It's volunteer time. She's given up her time to help us out, to be part of the show, to pod- do the podcast for us, and we really appreciate it. And, yeah, we'll always remember your contribution and – yeah, we keep in touch. We want to hear onwards and upwards um, post-0G life. And, yeah, thank you so much again. I want to get more emails from her because she writes the funniest emails with turns of phrase that I would be, I hesitate to say, proud of. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I find them equally as infamous as some of mine. Mm. So there you go. I agree. Thank you very much, Kayla. Live long and prosper. May the force be with you and the lords of COBOL watch over you. All right, so we are going to go out with a track. I was just thinking about the dreadful situation in the United States and thinking, what would Captain Carter Mm. do? She'd be busting some chops, I am sure, even though she's a British citizen. (laughs) So this is a Captain Marvel, sorry, Captain Carter, although she is marvellous herself, the Captain Carter theme from Marvel Studios' What If? And this is uh, Shadow for Strider doing a version of that. Joe Bernatic is coming up next with Astral Glamour. 
And until next week, thank you, Thank Megan. you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.